The Advent narrative is often portrayed as idyllic and romantic, but the story of Christ's birth is much more complex and filled with hardship. More after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Merry Christmas and welcome back to Upwards. I'm Dan, your host. In this episode, we explore some of the less discussed sides of the Advent story, though it doesn't mean they're any less important. Too often we abstract the incarnation and forget that Christ was born into a time and place with major political, economic, and social strife. Mary and Joseph had to navigate a lot more than only an unplanned pregnancy. Practical theologian, author, and speaker Kelly Nicondia joins our Director of Technology, Dan Johnson, for a conversation about her new book, The First Advent in Palestine, Reversals, Resistance, and the Ongoing Complexity of Hope. We listen in as she talks about the broader context of the world and region that Jesus was born into, as well as some of the challenges his family would have faced in that time and place. Kelly is a theologian and author with a degree from Fuller Theological Seminary. She's a co-director of Communities of Hope, a community development enterprise in Burundi, and also serves as the theologian in residence for She Loves Magazine. We hope you enjoy this Upwards conversation and the rest of your Advent season. Well, uh... We have Kelly here with us today. She has a brand new book out. It's called The First Advent in Palestine. And we would love to just have a conversation about this great work that you've developed over, which seems probably a lot longer than, uh, <laughs> than um, you know, the last couple of years. Uh, I think there's some really interesting links to this book with some of the other work that you've done. But tell us a little bit about the origins of the book. Where did this come from? Why did this kind of rise up for you and need the attention um, that it that it gained? Well, I have long been attracted to the season of Advent, uh, which is something you know. I have some Catholic roots mm. um, in my early uh, journey, and have been in and out of other church spaces that. Um, practice Advent. Mm -hmm. And so this has always been in a, a season in the church that has been deeply meaningful for me. So there was already just a, a connection to the, to the season. Uh, but what I found in the last set of years, and I'd say maybe the last seven to 10 years, is that as we started moving towards Advent, which is traditionally a, a season where we talk about hope and light and anticipation and joy, you know, like all of these words that just almost, they, they kind of shimmer, you know, mm -hmm. I would, I found that I started moving into Advent with a sense of like heaviness or foreboding. And I was more deeply aware of kind of the injustices or what wasn't right in the world. Um, and so at some point I thought this, I need to be recalibrated. And so I really 
dove deep into these texts. So uh, I call them Advent texts or Advent narratives, but most people would know them as the infancy narratives. Mm. And these were given to us by Luke and by Matthew, right? Yeah. The story of the birth of Jesus. And, and in evangelical spaces, we and even Catholic spaces, we tend to have more of a harmonized um, understanding of that original story. But Matthew and Luke actually give us very different narratives. But I thought, I need to go back to these stories, which, as I said, I call them Advent narratives because I think they're more about just infancy or birth. I think there's so much more in them. Yeah. But I thought, I need to be reoriented by the mm. text. Mm. I need to, you know, this darkness, mm. you know, that I am feeling for years. And what I did when I explored the text is actually found that my my sense of um, heaviness and darkness was not incongruent mm. with these stories. Mm. Uh, so it actually made me feel like, wow, this is actually part of what it is to, uh, it was part of the first Advent mm. and it is, you know, it is part of being faithful to these Advent stories now to to struggle with some of the darker themes, yeah. even as we enter into stories about the arrival of God, mm. what it looks like when. And so that that's kind of how it came together for me is a season I loved, mm. needing to recalibrate yeah. um, when I felt that I had become a bit of an anomaly, and then um, I have a deep love for Israel Palestine and um, have a lot of really good friends um, in Palestine in particular, and I really wanted my Palestinian friends and their stories to be seen. Mm. Um, so many of them are the custodian of our holy sites and mm. also have deep connection to the mm. land alongside Jewish brothers and sisters. And I, I thought I wanted to make sure that they are part of the story um, that I tell. So that's kind of mm. how those little elements all came together mm. and became the first advent in Palestine. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. I was really intrigued by the subtitle of this book. Um, mm. So, uh, Reversals, Resistance, and the Ongoing Complexity of Hope. Unpack that a little bit for us, just in that kind of your thought process about those three themes kind of coming up in the subtitle of this book. Sure. Well, you know, sometimes you have a title going into a project, and sometimes you don't get one until you're on the other side. Yeah. And this book, the title definitely developed um after i had written the word, the book so the manuscript was turned in and these were all phrases that uh, things that definitely came out of you know two and a half years of um exegetical work and writing mm -hmm. uh, and so you know reversals uh is i think so much of these stories we see moments where what we would expect or what the original readers, the Jewish men and women would have expected was reversed, was turned on its head. Mm. Nobody would have expected somebody special to come from Galilee. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> knew the expectation was to look south to, to Judah, to Bethlehem, to Jerusalem. Right. So Mary being this girl coming from Galilee is like, what? Or Maybe there was an expectation that if the angel was going to come and speak to a priest, you would assume it would be a high-ranking priest, mm -hmm. not an mm -hmm. ordinary, lowly priest <laughs> yeah. who was bivocational like yeah. Zachariah. Like, you know, you just I just kept seeing places in which when God arrives, 
our expectations are upended. Mm. And I think that is part of uh, what it looks like when God comes into these territories. And even, you know, today where we, when you see it, that imperial force, mm. um, then it was the Romans, uh, that was the empire of that day, but yeah. we have empires today. Mm-hmm. And some would even say that we behave in imperial ways. Mm. Um, you see the seeds of what the spirit is doing, and often it is reversing what we think is normal, what we've come to accept as the status quo. Even God, you know, I one of the ahas for me in the beginning was when I did the historical work, and I was like, wait a minute, these stories happened when the Pax Romana had already been inaugurated, mm. right? Mm. There was world peace. Mm. Caesar had done it. He was Mm. called the savior of the world. Mm. And because he had finally brought peace Mm. uh, to at least a huge swath of the world. So why was this the time Mm. that God would come into skin, come into place and, and be incarnated? And my sense was, oh, because again, he was going to say, you think this is what peace looks like? with a mm. dominating force, and military violence and economic mm. exploitation and the rich getting richer and the poor getting, you think that's what peace looks like? Mm. Well, I'm going to reverse everything you think you know about peace. Mm. And I'm going to come and show you a different way to see and think about peace. Even that to me was kind of a reversal of what, you know, I'm going to critique what you think you know of peace and reverse yeah. some of those yeah. expectations. So yeah. reversal just seems, you know, from beginning to end mm. um, to have been a theme, of mm. course, resistance because mm-hmm. what we often miss is mm. that in an imperial landscape, um, it was not quiet, bucolic, pastoral terrain. Yeah. It was loud, it was loud with, um, you know, punishing force of the Roman, of the Romans, people pushing back and fighting for their land, uh, lots of loss and heartache. I mean, it was it was loud. And part of what was loud was the resistant movements mm. of those times, mm-hmm. which I think Mary and Joseph and you know these they would have all been part, you know, yeah. coming from that region. You know, the northern region was known for resistance. And so yeah. you start to think, oh, they most likely would have been part of those social mm. movements themselves. Mm-hmm. So resistance became part of how I see Advent now, but never had seen that before. Um, and then, you know, I think, do these texts give us hope? Mm. Yes, but it is a much more complex hope than I was told growing up. Mm. It's not the easy, shiny, mm-hmm. uh, we're just going to hope and wish that things are going to be better. It's it's a hope that really does have to grapple with hard landscapes. And so, yes, there's hope, um, but it is a hope that that has to really wrestle. And to me, that makes it more complex. It's not an easy. So that's yeah. a little bit of why those phrases yeah. um, became important and why we wanted them to be front and center for people to know that this is what you're getting into when you get this book. <laughs> yeah. You're getting, yes, it's Advent, but it's also Palestine, which is also yep. pretty evocative for a lot of people, but it's also about these things. So I hope that that will actually invite people in. Yeah, that's great. I love that. That's so good. Um, so you begin the book with the story of the Maccabees. Uh, super interesting. Mm-hmm. 
Um, <laughs> Isn't that where everybody starts yeah. their Advent story? I was like, oh, Advent. Oh, this is a different start. Um, so, so why start your why start the story there? And then how does it set up the rest of the book and the biblical narrative? What we kind of know of a lot of is kind of the Christmas story. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, what would be your hope? What's an important historical moment here that you're highlighting that we're missing? Sure. Well, and some of this will, you know, will sound, will make sense when, given that I had already shared with you my own sense of personal darkness mm-hmm. that I had been feeling, right, that, uh, and grappling with why am I feeling the, the, the weight of injustice at a time when I should be thinking about hope and light and goodness. And what I realized is that when you, I'm a, I'm a big person who I'm big on context. Mm-hmm. What is the context of a of a of a pericope in the Bible that we're studying? A passage. What is you know what is happening before it and around it? Well, that's kind of the that's where this began. Is I well, what happened before immediately before these Advent narratives that mm-hmm. Luke and and Matthew were telling us? And you know, if you just look at our Bible the Bible that I think most of us Protestants have, we go from the Hebrew Bible ending with Malachi, Malachi uh-huh. and then we go, you know, to the Gospels. Yeah. And it's easy to think that there is nothing in between. Mm. Mm. You know, even if we maybe at some level know, well, things happened in between, the fact that there's no biblical text in between, it's easy to kind of think it must have not been anything important. Mm. Mm. And of course, I grew up being taught that the years in between or what we call the intertestamental period, um, that they were the silent years. Mm. Now, theologically, we would say that that there was a silence between the last prophetic words offered to Malachi and then, you know, the the gospel writers Mm. and what they're going to start telling us about, Mm -hmm. well, God's arrival, um, which we will later hear about from these writers, Mm. but that there were 400 silent years. Mm -hmm. Well, again, that makes you think nothing much was happening. But (laughs) historically, they were the only person who had the prerogative to be silent would have been God because Mm. the the Jewish people were had been suffering under multiple successive empires Mm. for generations. Mm -hmm. Um, And so. We know the Roman Empire, but before the Roman Empire, um, there was uh, the Greek or the Seleucid Empire. And this is where we get the Mm. story of the Maccabees, Mm. that the Seleucid Empire was, uh, they were also ruthless. Um, Part of what they were ruthless in is their economics. They they taxed at a pretty high rate Mm. um, the average um, person living in Galilee, Judea, that, you know, Mm. at 33%, I think, historically, they taxed them, which is a lot. Yeah. but they were a ruthless empire mm. um, in terms of their military, the way they behaved militarily and economically and and even persecuted uh, the Jewish people um, and tried to tamp down and kind of snuff out their religious practice. I mean, their king, you know, came into the temple and just, you know, did all, you know, abomination, right? Abominated the temple. Um, and this was part of the Jewish story. And mm. I think it's interesting because it does connect to our Jewish brothers and sisters who now practice Hanukkah. Mm-hmm. And of course, Hanukkah is a commemoration of the, the struggle between that Seleucid Empire 
and the Maccabees, which was a family, a group of sons around their father who was a priest, common priest as well. And they pushed back against this empire. And it was kind of another David and Goliath story where, you know, these these small groups of uh, Jewish fighters were rebelling again, rebelling, resisting against this imperial force in their land. And after a couple of years, they were able to actually push out the Maccabees. Mm. I mean, the Maccabees were able to push out the Seleucid Empire and rededicate the temple. And this is where we get the celebration of Hanukkah, mm-hmm. which to me was also fascinating that, oh, this is a way to understand that some of the stories that our Jewish brothers and sisters still practice today are not completely disconnected from, mm-hmm. from our stories yeah. and our practices, that there is some resonance. And not that we would now, you know, just like I don't think we should be practicing satyrs <laughs> unless we're invited by our Jewish friends to do so with them. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I'm not saying we should go out start practicing Hanukkah. But I think to see the connection mm-hmm. uh, of our faith communities, uh, you know, that they are commemorating uh, kind of a, a moment in their nation of reclaiming their national sovereignty and and rededicating the temple. And it was short-lived. It only lasted, you know, not even a full 200 years. It was short-lived reclamation um, because then, of course, the Romans would come. Yeah. But I think the story is important to recognize. Again, it's just a snapshot of what had been happening in those 400 years. There was always an empire. There was always resistance. There was always Mm -hmm. loss, loss of life, loss of land, loss of money. And that this would have been in the body of Jewish people. This, Mm -hmm. right? We would now call it generational trauma. Sure. Yeah. But that this was part of what was in the DNA, so to speak, mm. of Zachariah and Elizabeth and in Joseph and in Mary. This was in them yeah. and in their community. Uh, and, and so I think that there's something about rec- it was important to me to give that context. Mm. Um, that there was loss and lament. Mm. And that is what predic- that was the predicate to what yeah. we will hear um, in terms of, well, why did God arrive? Why now? What what was God arriving into? Well, a really loud uh, landscape uh, with lots of pain and loss and, mm. um, and and deep body memory, you know, like deep DNA memory, so to speak, of, mm. of trauma. Mm. Uh, and I now I can't read these texts and not see all the tells of a community that is dealing with trauma, um, but I had never seen it before. So mm. that's why I want people to kind of get into that space mm. and recognize mm-hmm. that this is what, yeah, uh, where these characters are, um, where their people are mm. when God decides to, to arrive. So cool. I love it. <laughs> it's a great place to start. Um, well, you highlight some really well-known characters in the biblical story of Jesus' birth, like Zachariah, uh, Mary, Elizabeth, Herod, Magi, star, shepherds, angels. But then you often link to the story of modern day Palestine um, and bringing kind of those two threads together. What were some of your favorite stories in that kind of that linking between the biblical narrative and modern day Palestine? Uh, you know, it's hard because uh, so each of the stories actually is a personal connection, mm-hmm. right? I've, mm-hmm. I've, matter of fact, I was supposed to write a huge portion of this book in Bethlehem. The plan mm. was for me to actually stay in Bethlehem for three months and okay. write the bulk. Yeah. Um, and then COVID 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm very sad. I always feel like there's a little something missing, you know, from not yeah, getting to write sure, it from, sure. from Star Street where we had yeah. land on it. But no, um, I mean, I don't know. I think one of the first stories I tell is um, of Razuk Tattoo, um, a, a family that has been uh, doing pilgrim to their Coptic family. They themselves travel. It came in the 13, early 1300s from Egypt and they have been tattooing pilgrims. Um, for what 700 years hmm. and uh, now it's the 27th and 28th generations that are actively tattooing and I think there was something you know I've had you know I think five tattoos from them over the years hmm. every time I go I hmm. get you know my pilgrim tattoo from hmm. uh, or one of his sons but there was something about seeing as I got to know Wazim and hear his story. I remember the first time he's like, well, you can't make a living being a tattoo, you know, at being a tattoo artist in the old city. You right. You have lots of pilgrims who come around um, the passion week. Right. And then you have some that come during Christmas and some that come throughout, but not enough to make a living and support a family. And so, you know, he started telling me, you know, our family had been merchants from years back and my father made coffins, my great grandfather made coffins. And hmm. he was started to tell me about how they made it work. And when I started to dive deep into Zachariah's story, and I had never felt a connection to Zachariah, you hmm. know, I was like, oh, it's going to be so hard to write about a compelling way. Um, but surprisingly, mm. there was something about recognizing that he, as an ordinary priest, was bivocational. Mm. And it brought to my, oh, wow, that connects with mm. like what was had told me about his family. Like, you're doing this holy work of certifying people's pilgrimages, and they see it as sacred work to do mm-hmm. this for pilgrims. Mm. They had to supplement their living. E- even now, they have to supplement. I was like, wow, that helps me. I mean, one of the things is that that helped me see Zachariah in a fresh way mm. and to think about what it was for him to be bi- bivocational. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I always love telling people about Wasim because I hope when when mm. they get a chance to go to the old city, they'll um, they'll find him and his sons and, and yeah. uh, get their tattoos. Um, I also have one of my dearest friends, uh, Tahani, is... Mm is Palestinian. And Mm. I shared the story of her and her family at the very end Mm. um, when I was able to join them. They're deep in the West Bank, like off the grid, like Mm. it was very hard to get to them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I had the only days I had available was they were going to be harvesting olives. Mm. Their family, different family members all have their own groves, olive groves. And she's like, it's, you know, I want to take you to Ramallah and show you the city. And, but all, you know, but we're harvesting that way. I'm like, are you kidding? I get a chance to like be out there with you and harvest. And so uh, we hadn't seen each other in seven years. So to Mm. reconnect Mm. in her world was so phenomenal and, and to spend a day harvesting olives the way that families have done it for centuries was phenomenal. Mm. but also hearing her family members and the stories they wanted to tell about mm. what it was like living there and what they want us to know. Mm. You know, every one of her family members would come and sit next to me and with translation say, life here is so hard, but we we want to be at peace. Mm. Uh, th- that is what we want, but it is yeah. 
hard to survive here. I mean, it, they really wanted, uh, they're like, tell your friends how hard it is, to, but we're trying to survive. Mm. So that that was a really, I was really glad I could share some of their story and about their yeah. hospitality. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Um, so for most Christians, the Christmas story ends with the Magi. I mean, that's kind of the culminating piece. Mm-hmm. However, you take us to Egypt and the return of a uh, return of the Holy Family. Um, what are you hoping our re- your readers gain from these stories and the continuation? I'll say continuation because I do believe that it is the continuation. It is the full story. Um, so what do they tell us about our own faith journey and mm-hmm. in that hope? Sure. Well, I think what I was gifted and and I would assume a lot of your listeners might be similar in a similar place is we were we've been gifted a harmonized Christmas story. Uh, I think a lot of us think of that, you know, the manger scene that we have maybe even set up in our own homes. Mm-hmm. where We have Joseph and Mary and infant Jesus, and there's a angel up up atop and a star and um the magi or there right well this this didn't happen that that scene is a harmonized picture uh, elements uh-huh. from this gospel and a couple elements that come from mark's gospel mm. right like we've brought them together but actually if you look at luke's story you know there's no magi in his story mm. uh, there's no star in his story mm-hmm, right? and mm-hmm. if you look at matthew's story He's not. He's not talking about some of the saying the shepherds and right. Yeah. I think there is something about actually hearing both of these stories mm. um, in their own right. Mm. What do each of the gospel writers want us to understand mm. um, in terms of how they understood God's arrival? Um, but I definitely feel Matthew gets the shorter end of the stick because Matthew goes dark. Mm. The way Matthew tells the story, you know, Jesus is born. I mean. Uh, Obviously, he, he tells us a little bit more of Joseph's backstory, mm. right? That the angel comes to Joseph and tells him to go ahead and, and marry uh, his betrothed mm-hmm. uh, and to name her to name the baby Jesus. And of course, he mm-hmm. does that. He's mm-hmm. faithful. And so we get this, you know, the birth happens really quick. And then what happens, you know, right after that, but that they, Jesus has a target on his back. Mm. That Herod, you know, well, we, I mean, we hear about the mad, the story of the Magi and um, them coming and kind of letting Herod know that there's, there's another king on the rise, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so Herod gets, you know, wait, somebody's going to try and usurp my throne and all his insecurities are, are provoked. And so Target is put on the back mm-hmm. of baby Jesus mm-hmm. and they become political refugees. Mm-hmm. They flee to Egypt. Yeah. Uh, for sanctuary. And and then we have what we call the slaughter of the innocents. It wasn't just children, mm. right? Parents would have been slaughtered mm. trying to protect their children. So it was mm. just it wasn't just in Bethlehem. It was mm. the region. I mean, when we read the text more attentively, we see that it says Bethlehem and the surrounding towns, mm. right? It was a regional um thing that massacre that was happening. And it was bloody and it was this happened right after jesus was born i thought when jesus came everything was great Hmm. he said you know right peace and silent night and (laughs) joy to the world 
But the way Matthew tells it, Jesus is born and he has to hightail it out of town to, you know, to, to, for him and his family to be safe. Meanwhile, all his other relatives and people were getting massacred Mm. back home. The ones who didn't get an angelic heads up. Mm. Um, And when Herod dies and the angel tells Joseph that he can safely bring his family back. Even then, it's not a full return because mm. they can't go to their home in Bethlehem. Because mm. according to Matthew, Bethlehem was their home. Mm-hmm. They couldn't go because they, it was still too hot. Mm. Herod's son was still around. And if he would have caught wind that this child had returned, he would have continued the campaign of his father because mm. he was as vicious as his dad. Yeah. So, so then they go up north um, to Nazareth. So basically they become, I think, internally displaced. Mm-hmm. They can't even go. To, I mean, I'm guessing Joseph had to forfeit his plot or mm. give it to a family member so that he could, you know, mm. take his family north. And, mm. and even in Nazareth, it wasn't like it was safe. It was still a restive region. Yeah. Um, and so I think... Um, this is where Matthew kind of, if we're if we're talking about Advent, this is where Matthew ends his story. Mm. Um, of course, we know he'll go on to write the rest of the story about the Holy Family and about Jesus, and, mm. and we'll get to resurrection eventually. But yeah. he actually leaves us in a very dark place that when Jesus comes, everything isn't solved. Mm-hmm. Things actually get worse. Mm. They get hotter. They get more traumatic. Mm. Um, it doesn't, you know, and I think. That there again, this is the complexity of hope. Um, it it doesn't just all resolve quickly or easily. Hard things still happen. And mm. I I don't know, I feel like that's true to what the story is, but I also feel it's deeply true to how our world is. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of us who follow Jesus and who um are trying to live out the ways of Jesus, man, we are still living in some really mm. dark hard terrain. Mm-hmm. And so to me, there's something about that that actually feels deeply true. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yep. and, and, that, and it was important for me to, to end with Matthew, because I think it's a, it challenges us in ways that the story is meant to challenge us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've been doing some work around Advent practices and, um, and Related to the, probably the book, but just also spiritual practices in your own life and family and things that you're doing. Tell us a little bit about uh, some of the learning you've been doing around just Advent practices, Advent preparation, that whole thing. Um, really curious to hear from you on that. <laughs> well, I have, I mean, I have long loved the practice of uh, the Advent wreath. You know, now people will argue: is they purple candles or they blue? <laughs> I mean, but I church used, divide, right? <laughs> I have always used purple candles, but nonetheless, I grew up doing you know the Advent wreath and the you know lighting a candle each Sunday of Advent, leading mm-hmm. up to uh, Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that tradition, and it, it it's beautiful. But I wanted to try something new uh, this uh, this last Advent, actually, and. Maybe some of this was, you know, COVID. Maybe some of this was, you know, things that I was thinking and and immersed in with this book. But because I couldn't go to Bethlehem as I had planned, Mm. uh, my friend, Chef Fadi, who is an innkeeper and chef in Bethlehem, we texted almost, I mean, I would say every couple of days. And he was teaching me how to cook Palestinian cuisine. 
Uh, <laughs> um, I would get the ingredients and say, okay, I have pomegranate juice and pomegranate molasses. What do I do? And he would give me recipes and tell me family stories. And But I think as I was immersed in cooking Palestinian cuisine during COVID, kind of as a way to, I don't know, we all found ways, right? Some people, it was sourdough starter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Romania was cooking Palestinian food, and yeah. it, it allowed me to feel a connection to the region, um, maybe supplementing not being there in person. Mm. But I discovered, right, that that um, preserved lemons were part of mm. the Palestinian table. And mm. It takes four weeks mm. preserved lemons. Mm. And I thought, you know, I, I did it not connected to Advent at first. I just, I think it was in the middle of the summer, the mm. first time I did it. But I realized, oh, wait a minute, four weeks to take <laughs> a sour, rigid um, lemon and see it transformed into a sweet, soft condiment. You know, I the, the synchron the the syncing up the four weeks was was mm. like oh wait a minute there's something here, mm. and I loved the fact that as these lemons sat out because they sit out on your kitchen counter mm. as they're fermenting over the four weeks, mm. you know they're like well it's not a wreath and candles but it's this visual reminder sitting oh. on my kitchen counter, and I'm watching these lemons slowly break down and. I'm seeing this transformation happen slowly. Mm. And there was something about watching it happen as I was cutting up spices or, you know, herbs for a salad. And there were my lemons and just noticing the slow transformation that was happening. And um, and then, of course, four weeks later, you open up the jar and you have these amazing culinary little miracles. And. I saw quite this this actually is similar to some of the themes of Advent for me in that mm. you are waiting slowly. It's very different than I was just in Trader Joe's this morning and they have a whole end cap with I think five or six different kinds of advent calendars. Mm. Uh, where you get your quick hit every single day yeah, you get yeah. something, right? Whether it's a tea <laughs> bag or a or a chocolate or I mean they had all these different kinds. You know, yeah. every day you get a little something to whet yeah. your appetite for uh, Christmas. Mm. I'm like, yeah, but that's not the kind of waiting. Mm. You know, the first Advent, they were really waiting through some hard things mm. and didn't even get the full culmination at the birth of Jesus, right? I mean, mm. it's it's the kind of waiting that is required to be transformed. It, it's harder and it's longer and it can't be rushed. Mm. And there was something about preserving lemons that kind mm. of invited me into that slow transformation space where you are going to have to wait for four long weeks. Mm. You are not going to be able to make it go faster. You're not going to be able, you are going to have to submit to that slow process. Mm. And hopefully, you know, invite it invites me and I hope it'll invite others into thinking, um, what is it to be transformed into peacemakers? What is that? Mm. What has what has to be dismantled in us? What has to be soft? What in us has to collapse like the lemons had to collapse? Mm. What in us needs to be tenderized um, so that we can be more of the mm. peacemakers that God is inviting us to be? And I, so I, I am now proposing and I've asked a lot of my friends to think about this alternative practice for Advent, uh, not to replace your Advent wreaths, but it is an opportunity to maybe practice something different, to maybe see or experience something different. 
um, about transformation, about lament, about how sometimes collapse can be part of hope. Um, and also, you know, for those who want to connect more with our Palestinian brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. this is a way to experience a part of their cuisine. Um, and uh, man, I just last night I did a roasted chicken dish and I now I have so many preserved lemons in my house now. It's insane. <laughs> um, so I'm always looking for ways to use them now. But I had, you know. Beautiful preserved lemons as part of the melange yeah. of vegetables that I was roasting with my chicken. And yeah. uh, it was, and maybe think of Chef Fadi that mm. he introduced me to this particular recipe um, mm-hmm. for chicken. And, and now when I make it, I think about mm. him and his family in Bethlehem. And, and I think about, you know, am I living in solidarity with my brothers and sisters mm. there? Um, and am I becoming the kind of peacemaker, you yeah. know, that I think we're challenged yeah. to become yeah absolutely well you know there i think there's a lot of christians out there that are looking for kind of the traditional advent devotional right they're looking for the the quick hitters right the little uh, uh page and with the scripture on it um you know as kind of their thing uh, i so appreciate your book because it is not that um but i do think that it has is a very powerful tool for us to use for people that are in that mindset, you know, kind of the quick hitter, the Advent devotional, the people that are, you know, trying to kind of kind of check it off. Um, how might your book be a different type of resource for them this Advent season? Well, I think that, I mean, I appreciate you pointing out because I would not want to do a bait and switch, um, right? This is not a devotional book per se. It's not a yeah. ring with reflections and um prayers and broken up by days or weeks. It's it's not that kind of a resource. Um, this really is diving deep into the Advent stories. So it is an exploration of the stories we've been given by Matthew and Luke, which I think is always profitable, right? To really mm-hmm. have a deep understanding of the stories uh, that are underneath our holiday celebrations. And to I think we often, we're, we have been given a version, like I said, that's not only harmonized, but I think we're given a domesticated version. Mm. Uh, I didn't grow up learning that so much of what Matthew tells us is about how cruel the empire is, mm. cruel the world is, mm-hmm. or that Luke wants us to know that these were economic, that, that there was so much economic hardship. To be to register for a census, which I think Luke mentions five times in his mm-hmm. story about, about Mary and Joseph. Well, you were counted not to be represented like in a democracy. You were the only time the emperor counted you was when he wanted to know if he could extract more money from you. Mm-hmm. So when you were told that you had to go and register, you knew that you were about to experience a tax hike. Mm-hmm. So Luke's story is like all about economic hardship. And mm-hmm. I said, wow, I, these stories really pulsate with um, military incursions and political woes and economic exploitation. And that's just not what a lot of us are used to when we mm-hmm. think of Advent. Mm-hmm. And so this is an exploration in, into those parts of the story that we don't often 
hear from the pulpit or hear um, in Christmas movies or even in our right in our Christmas carols. The that's not, and yet it is what we were given by Matthew and Luke. Mm. And, and I think as those who are serious about their faith, while there's nothing wrong with enjoying the beautiful season that the, the that the church allows us to embrace, mm. I do think for the serious student understand the stories as they were given to us do the deep work Mm. um, and let that also fund and fund and shape your theological understanding of these stories Mm. Um, i hope it'll be a great resource for preachers who uh, will find some new ways to make this come alive and feel deeply relevant um, to their congregations Um, and i have written some devotions um, out of this you know, so you, there, I think for anybody who takes scripture seriously, anything can be devotional, right? Because you you do the deep exegetical work, you study, and the spirit shows up and allows you to see something or make a connection for how this is going to connect with my community or with my family. Mm. Well, that's that moment of devotion, right? Um and so I do still think there's beautiful opportunities for devotion that come out of this exploration of the text. Hmm. But in a sense, I'm expecting the reader to do that in partnership yeah. with the spirit hmm. that I, I tend to write in a way that's descriptive. I want to describe to you what I see in the text yeah. and in history. And I trust the spirit will prescribe. I won't prescribe. I won't tell you what that means, but I want the spirit to to do that with you as you look at your community or as you're reflecting in your own life. Um, what does this, what is the challenge for me? Uh, so I try to describe and trust that the spirit will prescribe <laughs> um, yeah. as we engage with the text. So yeah, absolutely. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Uh, you can find her book, The First Advent in Palestine, anywhere the books are sold. Uh, we would encourage you to click the link in um, the this, this show notes here for this episode, and that'll take you to the publisher's website, which we always encourage you to check it out on the publisher's website. So, Kelly, thanks so much for spending some time with us. It was great to see you again and to be with you today. Well, thank you so much. It was wonderful to uh, talk a little bit about these Advent narratives, and I hope that they will encourage and disturb and invite you into some new reflections this Advent. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.